Hi everyone, Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. In this podcast, we tell the amazing stories of geological expeditions of yore. As cliche as Newton's axiom, standing on the shoulders of giants, has become, for geologists, this is especially true. Whether it be the orogenic history responsible for James Hutton's famous unconformity at Sicker Point, or Chaim Ganser's Himalayan expeditions disguised as a Buddhist pilgrim, it is upon their shoulders that we stand to uncover the geologic mysteries around the planet. We will explore the stories of intrepid men and women whose adventures and discoveries put humanity on a course of greater understanding of how our planet works and how the geologic past has shaped our present. Today we have Michaela Moore and Gillian Ivey, two fellow geologists from Ontario, Canada, who are going to share with us the amazing and inspiring life of Marie Tharp, the famous geologist and cartographer in this episode of Geological Expeditions of Yore. Take it away, Michaela and Jillian. Hi, everyone. My name is Michaela Moore from the Geology Podcast Network, and today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite earth science pioneers in this episode of Geologic Expeditions of Yore. I'm also joined by fellow geologist Jillian Ivey. Hi, everyone. So, Michaela, who is the topic of this episode? So today, we are going to explore the incredible life of Marie Tharp, the mother of modern ocean floor cartography. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And it feels really special for the two of us to share her story, since it's thanks to influential women like Marie Tharp that have ensured the opportunities we have today as women in earth science. Yeah, I'm really excited too. And in a previous episode of Geologic Expeditions of Yore, we talked about Alfred Wagner, who was responsible for introducing the theory of continental drift to the scientific community. However, his theory was rejected and ridiculed. Marie Tharp is a huge reason why his theory is now accepted by the scientific community. She accomplished so much during her life, especially considering the obstacles, hardship, and public doubt that surrounded the majority of her career. Yeah, especially given the period of time she was educated in, which makes her drive to overcome these obstacles even more impressive. So Marie Tharp was born July 30th, 1920 in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Her father, William Edgar Tharp, was a soil surveyor for the United States Department of Agriculture. Tharp talks a lot about spending time with her father in the field, helping him collect data to make his soil survey maps, and how his job took them all over the country. Tharp actually attended almost two dozen schools by the time she graduated high school. She says that while she didn't plan to follow in her father's footsteps, she had map making in her blood because of him. Her father seemed to have a heavy influence over her curiosity early in life and then her education later on as well. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And Marie Tharp went to college then at Ohio University and graduated with majors in both English and music, along with four additional minors. She said that she changed her major every semester and that her father encouraged her to find something that she was good at and that she enjoyed. She took his advice. She said, I was really looking for something I was good at, something I could get paid for, and something I really liked, but there weren't many opportunities for women then, except as a teacher, secretary, or nurse. And this certainly wasn't the last time Tharp would face restrictions just because of her gender. It had become a constant struggle throughout her career. I 
And what ended up completely changing the direction of her career was actually World War II. The war became an opportunity, not just for Tharp, but for women all across the country to join the workforce and fill jobs left by men who were off fighting. And Tharp jumped at this opportunity. The University of Michigan began allowing women to take classes in the geology department and promised jobs in the petroleum industry if they completed a degree in geology. Tharp joined the program, graduated with a master's degree in geology, and started her first geology job with the Staniland Oil Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Unfortunately, she was confined to the office and not permitted to conduct field work, basically treated as a glorified secretary. She was determined to challenge herself, though, and while working at Staniland, she completed a second bachelor's degree in mathematics from the University of Tulsa. Still searching for a challenge and a career she was passionate about, she moved to New York City in 1948 and found a job at Columbia University working for Dr. Maurice Ewing as a part-time drafter. Even with an extensive education and a drive to succeed, she was essentially a research assistant to young male graduate students. Eventually, though, Tharp began working full-time with a young graduate student named Bruce Heason. She worked as a drafter, plotting ocean floor profiles since, as a woman, she wasn't allowed on the research ships due to a superstition at the time that women were bad luck on a ship. Heason spent most of his time in the field, even though she was more qualified for this position than he was. So how do you study the ocean floor without actually physically being there? Well, technology in this day and age allowed her to do just that. She collected the data she needed even when not present on the research vessels. Around this time, Dr. Ewing collaborated with Joe Warzel to develop the continuous echo sounder for the Navy during World War II. This technology had already been invented, but they modified it to allow for continuous data collection. Continuous? So how does that work? Yeah, so the instrument is installed in the hull of a ship, which is at the front, and that sends out sound signals or electronic pings in regular continuous intervals. And those continuous intervals are going to be the key here. Um, so those sound goes through the ship and down into the water column. Echoes from the seafloor are then received by the instrument, resulting in an uninterrupted series of seafloor depths. It's sort of like how a bat finds food by sending out bursts of sound and then receiving the echoes back to see um, where the food is and how big it is. Oh, so that sounds like sonar? Mm -hmm, yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the advanced technology helped Thart make her discoveries, that and tons of boats cruising the Atlantic Ocean. Between the 1946 and 52 cruises of the Atlantis and the 1921 cruise of the USN Stewart, Tharp was giving tens of thousands of echo-sounding measurements to convert into detailed seafloor profiles showing depth as well as any significant features, like mountains and valleys. In the end, she completed a total of six parallel transoceanic profiles across the North Atlantic, and she noticed something surprising. But before I talk about what she saw, it's important to note that at this time, scientists still thought that the ocean floor was flat, nothing like the grand mountains and valleys we know exist there today. But Marie was about to see this for the very first time. Eventually, after the plotting, drawing, checking, correcting, redrawing, and rechecking were done, I had a hodgepodge of disjointed and disconnected profiles of sections of the North Atlantic floor. Plotted on a map, the ship's tracks looked like a spider's web, with the rays radiating out from Bermuda, where most of the research vessels took on supplies and water. Sometimes the tracks zigzagged as the ships fled from the paths of storms. 
I noticed immediately the general similarity in the shape of the ridge in each profile. But when I compared the profiles, I was struck by the fact that the only consistent matchup was a V-shape indentation in the center of the profiles. The individual mountains didn't match up, but the cleft did, especially in the three northernmost profiles. I thought it might be a rift valley that cut into the ridge at its crest and continued along its axis. When I showed what I found to Bruce, he groaned and said, It cannot be. It looks too much like continental drift. At the time, believing in the theory of continental drift was almost a form of scientific heresy. Almost everyone in the United States thought continental drift was impossible. Bruce initially dismissed my interpretation of the profiles as girl talk. That's what the man said. Yeah, that's what the man said. He called it girl talk. Rejected like that. In two seconds, he called it girl talk. A valley with the rift applies continental drift. There ain't no place in science for talk. Wow. After all of the data she collected and her extensive scientific knowledge, her theory seemed to mean close to nothing just because of her gender. Yeah, exactly. And Heason wasn't the only person who immediately disregarded her theories and its association with continental drift. Tharp recalled that her view of the ocean floor was first called a bunch of lies, and in a letter to Heason, a colleague remarked that he was increasingly distressed to read one account after another in the press and magazines of this fabulous Rift Valley. Rift Valley, right. And so a quick refresher, a Rift Valley is a geologic feature that forms when oceanic or continental plates split and begin to widen over time, leaving valley-like space between the two that is filled in with new crust. You can kind of think of it like a fracture or a tear in the Earth's surface that widens over time. But it is significant because it is a key feature of continental drift, a fantasy rather than a serious scientific theory at the time. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, Alfred Wegener was the first scientist to seriously consider the theory and develop it himself in 1912. It was not accepted mostly due to a lack of evidence regarding the driving force of movement, as well as his high estimated speed of 250 centimeters a year. Therefore, the theory of continental drift was never an acceptable conclusion, and Heason made no exception when Tharp suggested the theory. Instead, Heason chose to favor the expanding Earth hypothesis, a theory attributing plate movement to the slowly increasing volume of the planet. But Tharp thought the valley was real, and she kept looking for it in any and all data she could get her hands on. She thought that if continental drift were real, it was logical that a rift valley would be a significant feature since it would form if new material came up from inside the earth to split the ocean ridge into two pieces and push them apart. By 1952, the Vima crews installed a precision depth recorder, or a PDR, which was a more accurate measurement system than the echo sounders and allowed for the discovery of more subtle ocean floor features. This new bathymetric data was supplemented by seismic data compiled and plotted by Howard Foster. This was the smoking gun. Tharp ended up overlaying her maps with the seismic plots and saw that the two strongly correlated with each other. Tharp presented her new data to Heason, who finally had to agree with Tharp's theories. About time. Yeah, no kidding. 
And so the seismic data was an important piece of the puzzle. It showed that the epicenters of these oceanic earthquakes made a continuous line through the center of the mid-Atlantic ridge, not just alongside it, which proved that these features were in fact rift valleys caused by seismic activity within the Earth's crust. The seismic data allowed Tharp and Heason to see that the mid-Atlantic ridge is a part of the 40,000-mile-long mid-oceanic ridge system that extends through the world's oceans. They also noticed a significant pattern all over the world. Wherever there was a mid-ocean ridge, there were earthquakes. With this new evidence to support their theories, Dr. Ewing and Heason announced the findings in 1956 at a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in Toronto, Ontario. Tharp goes on to describe the reactions of the public. The reaction in the scientific community ranged from amazement to skepticism to scorn. In 1957, Bruce gave a talk on the mid-ocean rift system at Princeton, bringing along a globe we made that showed how the rift system extended all around the world. After the talk, the eminent Princeton geologist, Harry Hess, who later developed the theory of seafloor spreading, stood up and said, Young man, you have shaken the foundations of geology. The discovery of the mid-ocean ridge system was a revelation, but nobody could explain how it got there. There's truth to the old cliche that a picture is worth a thousand words, and that seeing is believing. Like most scientists, Jacques Cousteau at first didn't believe in the Rift Valley. He crossed the Atlantic Ocean in the Calypso, towing a movie camera on a sled near the seafloor. They came to where our Rift Valley was and found it. He took beautiful movies of big black cliffs and blue water, which he showed at the first International Ocean Congress in New York in 1959. It helped a lot of people believe in our Rift Valley. Wow, that sounds really beautiful. And it's like a positive reception at that conference too. But why wasn't Tharp presenting? So she actually wasn't included on the majority of the papers that they submitted or any of these scientific talks. Her name was really only published on some of the maps. She was left out of quite a lot of it. Wow, that must have been hard to swallow. But somehow her passion doesn't seem to have wavered at all. And Tharp and her team weren't finished yet. In 1957, Tharp and Heason published the first North Atlantic physiographic map. Then in 1961, the South Atlantic Diagram was published, and in 1964, they published the Indian Ocean Map. They went on to collaborate with Austrian landscape painter Heinrich Behren to publish a detailed panorama of the Indian Ocean in 1967, and then continued with the rest of the world's ocean floors. Advancing technology and magnetic data, as well as exploration via submersible sampling, resulted in the mass amount of data Tharp, Heason, and Barron needed to finish the first complete map of the world, including the ocean floor. The panorama map entitled The World Ocean Floor was published in 1977 by National Geographic. Tharp said, I think our maps contributed to a revolution in geological thinking. They brought the theory of continental drift within the realm of rational speculation. You could see the worldwide mid-ocean ridge, and you could see that it coincided with earthquakes. The borders of the plates took shape, leading rapidly to the more comprehensive theory of plate tectonics. Establishing the Rift Valley and the mid-ocean ridge that went all the way around the world for 40,000 miles, that was something important. You could only do that once. You can't find anything bigger than that, at least on this planet. Thank you.
powerful. Mm -hmm. And Tharp continued to serve on the faculty of Columbia University until 1983 and then operated a map distribution business in her retirement. She then died of cancer on August 23, 2006, at the age of 86. Tharp fought for her entire life to earn the respect and esteem of her colleagues and scientific community that she deserved. She accomplished incredible things in the face of adversity, completely changed the way geology is taught today, and paved the way for generations of women in science to come. She received multiple notable awards for her contributions, including, but not limited to, the Society of Women Geographers Outstanding Achievement Award in 1996, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's Mary Sears Women Pioneer in Oceanography Award in 1999, the first annual Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory Heritage Award at Columbia in 2001, as well as a moon crater named in her honor by the International Astronomical Union in 2015. Marie Tharp said, Not too many people can say this about their lives. The whole world was spread out before me, or at least the 70% of it covered by oceans. I had a blank canvas to fill with extraordinary possibilities, a fascinating jigsaw puzzle to piece together, mapping the world's vast hidden seafloor. It was a once-in-a-lifetime, a, a once-in-the-history-of-the-world opportunity for anyone, but especially for a woman in the 1940s. The nature of the times, the state of the science, and the events, large and small, logical and illogical, combined to make it all happen. Thanks for listening. A special thanks goes out to the Amoeba people for their song Girl Talk featured in this episode, and to the Society of Women Geographers for providing interviews with Marie Tharp. If you enjoyed this episode, it is very helpful when you rate and review the podcast. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Editing and music production was done by Michaela Moore. Episodes of the Geology Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts. That's what the man said. Yeah, that's what the man said. He called it With photographic proof, they learned the truth. They called it A valley with a red proof content.